0: Creek, happy new year, everyone. If you're a guest here today, my name's Mark, one of the pastors. Welcome, we're glad that you're here. Even as we're here, we've got 180 of our students, middle school, high school students, along with some of their volunteer leaders up in uh, Green Bay for a great student convention called Districts. There's 4,000 students from around the state that are up there, and we've been praying for them and excited to hear. How God is going to use that weekend, this weekend, to really impact the lives of our students. And what we're all about here is joining God and seeing people become devoted followers of Christ. And we hope that's happening and believe it will be through uh, this kind of an event. So thanks for your prayers in that regard. Thanks also for your generous giving. We had a great month of giving. Over $430,000 came in, which means we made up the deficit that we usually incur in the fall. And we've caught up and we're in good stead as we start the new year. And so thanks to the almost 600 families and individuals who made that happen. And your generous, faithful giving in this place. I don't know if you know this, but like half the people give online, and it's an easy way to regularly do that. That just helps us to continually reach more people that don't know Jesus and continue to have those who do like you and me, grow to love him more and be more effective in serving him in this place and from this place. So thanks. So we're starting a mini-series in the book of Revelation. We're calling it The Great Ending. And it's the end little mini-series of the year-long series that started a year ago called The Storyline, The Bible Storyline, right? Finding ourselves and our stories rooted in God's story. So as we get into Revelation, I want to ask you if this has ever happened. Have you ever had this um, situation where there's this big game of your favorite team? And it's like a big game, not just a regular season game, but it's like a playoff game. Think of the Packers or a few of us remnants, you know, another team. Um, And you were working really hard to make sure you didn't see anything that gave you the score because you wanted to experience that as if it was live, even though you knew it was taped, right? So you know where this is going. So, but before you hit play, something awful happened. But it wasn't that awful, but it was awful. And the awful thing that happened is you find out the ultimate score. But what wasn't so awful about it is your team won. It was like, yes, but it completely changed the way you watched the game. Am I right? So, like, the first quarter could have been terrible. It could have been the opening kickoff to the other team and they ran it back for a touchdown. There could have been fumbles and interceptions and bad decisions and all kinds of cataclysmic events, but you found yourself calm, relaxed. Your wife wasn't thinking about committing you. You weren't throwing things. You weren't yelling things. You weren't covering up the ears of your kids. Why? Because you knew how the game ends. You have the score. And it changed the way you watched the game. Same thing in a movie. First time you go to the thrill, the action packed, your, your heart is pounding, your blood pressure's up. The second time, I know how this thing ends. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just better. So here's the premise. That God in his grace isn't just in control of history. But God in his grace has told us and shared with us the end of the story. And when we know the end of the story, it changes everything about living life in the middle of the story. And right now, we all have our little version, our own versions of life in the middle of the story. And so I want to think, you to think about that really difficult relationship. I want you to think about that health issue. It's maybe facing you, maybe facing someone else. I want you to think about financial pressures that you may or may not be feeling. I want you to think about a job situation, a relationship situation, maybe at school. You're not married. It's like, I don't know, it's not me. But that kind of relationship. Maybe you've got a bad habit that's really getting out of control. What would happen if you knew where this particular chapter of your story ends in a good way? How would it change the way you think about it, respond to it, Act. Do you think it would make a difference? I'm here to tell you, I think it would make a lot of difference. doesn't mean the circumstances don't change, but your feelings about, your response to what's happening. So here's one of these kind of cardinal principles that we're going to come back to in the next five weeks as we dig into the book of Revelation. Not revelations. It's not plural. It's singular. It's the revelation about Jesus Christ. So here's the, here's the teaching we're going to keep coming back to. When we know the end of the story, it positions us to honor Christ in the middle of the story, not giving up when it's hard and not giving in to compromise when we're tempted. We're ready and longing for Christ's return. And so knowing the end of the story changes how we live life in the middle of the story. That's where we're going in the next five weeks. And this is what I want for us to have rooted in our lives. It's going to change the way we deal with those relationships. We deal with the health issues. We deal with the financial pressures and all the other things that could be really, really hard at the beginning of 2018. All right, you with me? So grab your Bible. We're in the last book, Revelation, and we'll start working through chapter 1, and we'll use chapter 1 as kind of a good way to kind of get our bearings in the book, this kind of literature, how to read it, and we'll start by applying chapter 1 as we end our time together. Revelation, last book of the Bible, chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. Speaking of these visions. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it. That's you and me. And take it to heart, not just hear it, but take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. It's important. John the seven churches in the province of Asia. So let's just catch up uh, with just who's written this book and uh, to whom, because we have some understanding here that's clearly made known to us in these opening verses. So it's written by a guy named John. Theologically, though, we'd say, What we have here in verse 1 is it's actually this revelation that John received. He received it. Here's the transmission. From God to his son, Jesus Christ, who gave it to an angel, who then revealed it to John that he might write it down on a scroll and give it to the seven churches across Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So who's this John? Most people, scholars, believe, and it goes way back in church history to early days into the second century, that this John is none other than the beloved disciple, Jesus' closest friend, the writer of the fourth gospel, the writer of the three epistles, three letters for 2nd and 3rd John. Written in a period at the end of the first century, some 60 years after Christ's ascension, and it's, it's being written in this context of an emperor called Domitian, who is ruling over the Roman Empire, and he's fierce, and he's after Christians. It's a time of persecution. The context will be that he is on an island called Patmos, just 50 miles off of the coast, the main line, modern-day Turkey, and he's there because of his faith and ministry for Christ. We read about that in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion and the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's there in, you know, in exile because of his faith. On the Lord's Day, that is on Sunday, Resurrection Day, I was in the Spirit. He was, he was caught up in the Spirit in this series of visions that he received. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said... Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So here's a map. Kind of get your bearings. G and C, Greece over here, the Mediterranean. This is modern-day Turkey. All these little green spots, kind of hard to see from where you're seated. Just trust me, these are the different places. Pergamum, Thyatira, right, Sardis. So we got Ephesus and Philadelphia and Laodicea. So we've got all these letters, and then here, all these church settings, and here we have the island of Patmos where John is in exile. And it's just like God. You know, the enemies of God think they've gotten rid of this strategic leader, this elder statesman of the churches, and here he is, and he gets this revelation from God that will strengthen these churches and be this great, great help. So what we remember as we read the Bible, it's always true, but it's true again right here in Revelation. It's not written to us. We're not the first audience. It's written for us, but it's written to these people, these Christians in these churches in Asia Minor who were in this period of time where there is persecution. There is this whole thing of emperor worship in the Roman Empire. That Caesar wasn't just king, but he was God, and Domitian had no problem, you know, ascribing deity to himself, and there's pressure to worship Caesar, the emperor. There were these temples of worship, like in a city like Ephesus, and other major cities in the Roman Empire, so persecution was real, and compromise was real. The whole culture and values of the Roman Empire were seeping in and were temptations for the Christians. And so this is real people, it's not to us, it's for us. And we're going to best understand the teaching and its implications for us today when we go from Revelation to a church like Ephesus to Door Creek to Madison. The temptation is we go right from Revelation to Madison today. And we lose our way because we haven't wrestled with the immediate context. And what I like to say is, we're cutting with the wrong end of the knife. This isn't a double-edged knife, even though that's the metaphor of Scripture. But we're cutting with the dull end of the knife. And so there's a historical context. And the purpose is to strengthen and encourage and call God's people back to faithfully following God, even through, through suffering. So... Two primary questions. What kind of a book is Revelation? Because if you haven't read it, it's not going to take long where you go, wow, this is kind of different. I'm not used to this kind of really highly symbolic language. Is it symbolic? (coughs) Well, it is. So what kind of book is Revelation? And then how is it that we should read it? What are some clues and helps so I can find my way through the choppy waters of the book? So what kind of book? So, one of the things we've already seen is it's a letter. And so, we're not surprised that the author has been revealed and the audience, the recipients, have been revealed. And so, it has this kind of letter format, at least in the beginning and the end. It's a letter. The other thing we're going to see, though, is it is a revelation. And as a revelation, it's that word that transliterates really easily in English because it's the same word. If you looked at it in the original language and you look at it in English, it's the word apocalypse. So it's apocalyptic literature. It's got its own style. This word apocalypse, it's this idea of revelation, is something that was previously hidden has now been revealed and made clear. And what it's revealing isn't this secret code that helps us figure out all these things about the end of the world and connect the dots on what's happening today. It's, not, it's revealing a person who's in charge of history and all that history is going through, our triune God and his son who came and is coming back as the ruling king to make all things right. And so we understand that it's a revelation. There's common features. There's this dualistic worldview that clearly divides good and evil. Jesus, the protagonist, the hero. Satan and his minions, you know, the antagonists. There's this abundance of these cataclysmic events that are all driving towards the end of the world and final judgment. And all of those events are described in highly symbolic language, Turn to your neighbor and say, remember, Revelation is all about symbols. Tell them. (laughs) Don't forget that. Don't forget that. If you lose your way here, you're going to be so confused. So high use of figurative, symbolic language, lots of similes and metaphors. I, I was chasing the similes. Remember a similes grammar lesson? Using like or as, it's comparing something, that's a simile. There's like 66 similes right here in the book of Revelation. It'll use animals as symbols. It'll use colors as symbols. Numbers are highly symbolic. That's not usually how uh, an American thinks about numbers. We hear and read about the seven spirits in verse 4. We're going, to, and he, there were seven spirits, and there are seven spirits. And it's in this Trinitarian kind of greeting and, and praise. Well, just read it with me. Look at, at the, as we continue on in verse 4, grace and peace. There's this opening greeting, so, so common of the letters in the New Testament. Grace and peace to you. From who? From God the Father, Him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits. There it is. Now I got a little letter A and I go down and see that letter A says it could also be translated the sevenfold spirits. But numbers, so like right here, he's talking about God the Father, then he mentions seven spirits, and then he mentions Jesus Christ. So it's this Trinitarian context here Father, Spirit, Son. But, like, what's this about seven Holy Spirits? I didn't know about seven Holy Spirits. I thought there was just one Holy Spirit. I thought the teaching of the Trinity is one God who exists in three persons. So what's the deal? Is there, like, nine persons? Father, seven spirits, Jesus. What's going on here? we got to understand The book is going to use the genre, the style of writing uses numbers symbolically. The number seven is a number for completeness, for wholeness, for perfection. So it's another way of saying, and the perfect Holy Spirit, complete and perfect in all that he is and does. So there's this. I mean, seven gets like double, triple duty in the book of Revelation. There's all these sevenfold patterns. There's the seven letters to the churches, which kind of clues us to go, okay, there were really seven churches, but these seven churches was like this complete group of churches that represent all churches that know and love Jesus Christ, past, present, future. Meaning, what's going on back then is likely things that we're wrestling through today, what they needed to hear is what we needed to hear. Even though it was written to them, it really is for us. So there's seven letters. There's these seven seals that nobody can open until the Lamb of God, Christ, shows up. Verse Chapters 5 through 8, there's the seven trumpets in chapters 8 through 11. There's the seven signs of the cosmic battle in 12 through 14. There's the seven bowls of wrath and judgment in 15 and 16. There's the seven last events in chapters 17 through 22. So be looking the symbols. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Understand too, Revelation isn't just talking about the future. Shouldn't surprise us because we were just told it's about a letter to people in real places facing real circumstances back at the end of the first century. So the time frame for a lot of us when it came to this book is we were raised thinking that whenever somebody taught about uh, Revelation, it was always talking about future events and Christ soon return, any day return, and connecting the dots right in the secret code of what's happening in Russia or what's happening here, what's happening in the Middle East and how this means that and that means this and so, you know, and when it gets really crazy, some guy's riding around the square here in Madison telling us when the end of the world's coming because he knows, he's got the date. Alright? So when the book of Revelation starts talking about time, we know from verse 1 about things soon to come, but look down at verse 19, and we understand it's not just about the future, it's also about today. Right, therefore, Jesus says to John, what you have seen, what is now, that's present, and what will take place. And so many scholars will divide the book of Revelation, chapters 1 through 4, what is now... Chapters 5 through 22, what is soon to take place. What is now is present. It's unveiling, pulling back the curtain on heaven. It's talking to us about the present realities of heaven, of God, of Christ. It's talking about the present challenges of our day. And it's going to talk about things that have happened, that are happening, and that someday soon will happen. Don't expect it to fall out in this chronological order. And so as we start off with the seals, that what we read about then next in the trumpets happens after the seals, and then the bulls are after the trumpets. So it's very likely the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls are kind of the same seven events in a different kind of analogy and, and symbolism to help us go, okay, you heard it one time, John says, I'm going back. I'm going to give it to you again. I'm going to give it back to you again. It's like it's circling back. And it's so easy for us to go, if I'm reading it in chapter 15, it has to be happening after what I read in chapter 12. So don't read it like that. Read. Understand that a lot of what John's going to do is circle back and recapitulate these important themes. So it's a revelation. And it's highly what? Oh, you guys, like A for everybody. Good. You should talk to each other more. All right, it's highly symbolic. It's prophetic. So when you hear prophecy, I I guarantee most of us go, oh, yeah, a prophecy is about a future. It's a prediction about a future event, right? It's foretelling, and that's true. But the majority of what the prophets did is they spoke about the future in relationship to their relationship with God today. And they were not just foretelling, they were forthtelling. They were preaching, not just predicting. And they were saying like a prosecuting attorney, hey, people of God, remember we said that we want to be God's people and we're not acting like God's people. We've got all these idols, and we're trashing our neighbors and the most vulnerable, and they call the people back to God, pointing out their sin. And when it gets to the future, it has everything to do with how they're going to live their life today. Look, if you don't change, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be carried off by these bad people, your enemies, into a foreign place. But if you do, it's going to go well with you. And so it's a prophecy, which isn't just talking about The timeline and the future, but it's talking about the oughtness and the ethics of living for God today. That's how prophecy works. So, how do we read this? This letter written to the seven churches. The best advice I can give you, and we ought to apply it to all of Scripture, because Jesus tells us that's how He read the Bible in Luke chapter 24, is keep the spotlight on Jesus, keep looking for Jesus. Go back to chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ in our NIV. If you've got an ESV, they translate the language there of Jesus Christ. You could do it either way. And even if you have it from Jesus Christ, we know that he's testifying to everything that has to do about Jesus. Who is the Word of God? John's own language for Jesus in John 1.1. And the testimony of Christ. So this is a revelation fundamentally not about the end of the world, but about Christ and his establishment of his perfect rule and reign, where he comes back and makes all things right and ushers in the new heaven here on earth. So look for Christ. Chapter 1 a beautiful revelation about Christ. So we read this in verse 5. He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. Right, he rose from the dead. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Yeah, Domitian may be Caesar, but he's over over Domitian. He's the one who lovingly redeemed us through the price of his own lifeblood. He's the one who's transformed us from being rebels into priests. He's the one to whom all glory and power exists forever. In verse 12, after he's heard this Loud voice like a trumpet, right? He turns around, verse 12 tells us, to see the voice that was speaking to him that sounded like a trumpet. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, so candelabras. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. This is Jesus' self kind of ascribed title that he grabs from the Old Testament that Daniel used to talk about the coming Messiah. And he uses that of himself. This is about Jesus. This God-man, like a son of man. And he's described as being dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash. Is that a, a, role, a robe of a ruler, of, of a priest? This golden sash around his chest? The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. <coughs> is, that, is that an image, a symbol of the, the fact that he's lived forever? Forever? We were wrestling with the symbols, trying to figure out what are the spiritual truths here. Eyes were like blazing fire, his purity, his holiness, his feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, his voice like the sound of rushing waters. Think of the roar of Niagara. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double edged sword. So powerful and cutting his word. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last, the everlasting God. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I have authority and power over all things, including death. So there's this beautiful vision And there's going to be these other visions and there's going to be these peaks as the curtain gets pulled back of heaven today, like in chapter four, where we see what's going on with the angels worshiping Christ, those who've gone before us worshiping Christ. And so we're, we're keeping the spotlight on Jesus. He's the center of this book. He's the center of history. He's the goal of history. It's where all history is heading to Christ and his perfect reign and rule on this earth. The one who brings victory through his suffering. The one who's defeated the devil, sin, and death. Who's going to come back as judge and make all things right. Now, this is really important for the people back in the first century. They're suffering. We don't get this. Some of us, I'm not saying that some of us aren't suffering for being a Christ follower today because the ethics that Christ calls us to could put you in a hard place with your friends or in your business dealings. But we're not suffering in the same way that many are across the world today. You didn't slip in here looking over your shoulder, did you? You're not worried That someone's going to come after you, your family, and hurt you because of your faith. And so what I do know this is when we suffer injustice, whether it's for the name of Christ or just because we're living for Christ in a fallen world, we long for justice and it was really important for the people back then as it is for us today in a world that is crazy and sometimes doesn't make any sense to remember that he is on the throne over all the kings that he's coming back to make all things right but he's not just the judge he's the loving redeemer he's the focus of heaven's worship he's the light of heaven the Revelation is going to tell us that there is no need for the sun in heaven because of Christ. His radiance, his radiance lights up heaven for all eternity. So how many of you saw the eclipse this summer? Anybody see it? Now, I mean, just think about it. So what was going on? Now, if I like goof here, somebody just patiently guide me here because I'm not a scientist. Um, But here's what I think I know about the eclipse. That there is a point in the rotation of our moon and the sun and the planets where between us here on earth and the sun that the moon covered the sun, right? And so we physically noticed that things got what? Darker. But think about this. Even though the, the moon eclipsed the sun, we all had to get glasses. So... These are my two boys, uh, Luke on the left, um, and Peter, and Lori. And I think Luke got these glasses somewhere at UW's campus in Milwaukee. And so we were up in Door County. We had them. And what was everybody saying? Don't you dare look at the sun, though it is eclipsed, unless you have protective eyewear on, because you're going to damage, you're going to damage your eyes. And so here's this image, this symbol of Christ whose eyes, whose face is radiant like the sun. And we remember that. He's the light of the new heaven. We see his awesome power that we might live for Christ. So here's the deal. When we're looking for Christ, it's to the end that we would live and love like Christ. This isn't just about information about the events and how it's all going to work out. This is to transform how we do life in the middle of the story. This is to transform how we live our lives for Christ. So look for Christ. Second, read it figuratively. Looking for the connection between the symbol and the truth. So let me give you an example. If you see the symbol of a skull and crossbones, you understand that that is not telling us there is a bunch of crushed bones in here and bone meal is good for you and it gives you strong fingernails. We understand that is a symbol that is, sh- that is saying this is poisonous material. It is, it, is, it is connecting the symbol with something else. And so our task as we read the symbols of the book of Revelation is to connect the symbol to the spiritual truths. And so we're reading it figuratively. Now, here's a humorous line to make the point. We instinctively know that a sentence that begins like this. The stars will fall from the heaven. The sun will cease from its shining, and the moon will drip with blood. The end, the, the end of the sentence is not going to go, and the rest of the country is going to be partly cloudy with scattered showers. <laughs> it's different language. And so we'll talk about, hey, we, the, our second value, the Bible's authority, centering our lives on God's truth. You hear me say, we believe this is God's word, all of it true. And so we will say, we, we believe the Bible is literally true. So what does that mean? Well, we believe in a supernatural God who at times and places in history has acted supernaturally. And so we're not blown away when the Bible says that everything came into existence out of nothing because of who God is. We're not surprised that God could part the waters during the night with the wind so that the people of Israel walk on the dry ground of the bed of the Red Sea. We're not surprised that Jonah is spared by this great fish that he lives in for three days before he's, you know, ejected there on the shore. We're not surprised that We could read that Jesus was born of a virgin through the Holy Spirit. So when we say we believe the Bible is literal, it's because we have this supernatural worldview of who God is and how he could interplay in our world. But what we're not saying here is that we throw out the the rules of language, and so it doesn't matter what it says. We believe it to be literally true. So if Jesus says he's the bread of life, we believe he's the bread. And there are times when he just, he was... Like Wonder Bread. Oh, we, we understand that. So literally means understanding that we still hold to the rules of language. God in His grace has made Himself known through this revelation that is written, the Word of God, and lived out Christ, the Word of God, that we might better understand Who he is and who we are, and what to make of this world, and how to find hope and meaning and satisfaction and peace in this world. And so we don't throw out the rules of language, we embrace them. We understand we're going to have to read Revelation differently than we read the book of Acts, this narrative history, than we would read the Proverbs. (coughs) So, what else can we say? It's highly symbolic look for the symbol to be explained in the context. So when you think about context in the Bible as we're reading the Bible, think about it in concentric circles. So the first context is the immediate context. We're reading Revelation 1. He's just talked about seven stars, and he's talked about seven lampstands. In the immediate context, verse 20, look at it, he explains What those are, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand (coughs) and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels, or it could be translated the messengers, or it could be understood as the preachers of the seven churches that, that they're in his hand. Oh, that was so comforting for me this week just to remember that. And what about the lampstands? Those are the seven churches. So here's a perfect example. This isn't talking about what will one day happen. This is happening today. It was happening 2,000 years ago that God, through His Son Christ, was walking, was present with His people. Christ is with us here at Door Creek Church. He's up at North Campus. He's across the way at Blackhawk and Fountain of Life. And wherever Christ's people are gathered, He is in the midst with them. He holds and protects those who serve faithfully his church. So we look for it in the media context, and, and here's how we go. We go from Revelation chapter 1 to all of Revelation to other writings by John, the Gospels or the letters, to the New Testament, to the Old Testament. And Revelation gives us 350 references to Old Testament scriptures. And a lot of the symbolism that we'll find in Revelation, just like here in chapter 1, has its antecedents in the Old Testament, like Daniel chapter 7 really is lent on here in in big ways. His vision there in chapter 7, very similar to John's here in Revelation 1. A couple more things about symbolism. Develop a category of kind of major themes for this book so that you know kind of where do I put this symbol so here's some of the categories um, heaven and worship is a category God's glory Christ's glory his character right judgment punishment hell that's a category redemption salvation evil the conflict with evil the new heaven the new earth so chapter one what's the category It's the glory of Christ. It's it's giving us insights and teaching, pulling back the curtain on who Christ is, okay? So look for those categories. So keep the focus on Christ. Read it figuratively. Look for the symbol and look at how it points to spiritual truth, trying to figure that out. And then third, remember that revelation is connected to the rest of the story and especially the beginning, So in the beginning, we got these wonderful promises. I'm going to crush, well, God promises to Eve, one of your male descendants, Genesis 3.15, he's got to crush the enemy, a fatal blow. Well, we read about that in chapter 20, verse 10, when (coughs) the devil is thrown in the lake of fire. There's the promise to bless all the families, We see that fulfilled in Revelation 7. The promise of this beautiful new land is the new heaven and the new earth. Of an eternal king in 2 Samuel, we see this eternal throne set up in Revelation 4. The promise that God would be with his people is how the book ends. Last thing I would say as we're trying to get strong about how to read this book is remember that Jesus kind of gives us the cliff notes on how we should think about the end times, his teaching in Matthew 24. Here's what Jesus says. Here's his cliff notes. He says there's going to be wars and rumors of war. Well, that's been happening since Jesus ascended, right? Wars and rumors of war. There's going to be natural disasters, famines, earthquakes, the sun and moon darkening. That's been going on at different times in history. Persecution, tribulation for their faith in Christ. That's been going on for 2,000 years. False teachers, false Christs, Final judgment, (coughs) some to eternal punishment and others to eternal life. That has not happened. And that last one's like really important. Jesus says nobody knows, but be ready because it could happen at any time. Nobody knows the day or hour of Christ's return. Jesus says, I don't even know that. Just the Father has that. So what do we do with this? Number one, we ask ourselves today as we walk out of here, so there's this is vision of Christ that we just kind of read through really quick. We need to slow down and take it in. So my vision of Christ, my vision of the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, does it match with what is being revealed here? Is my vision of God and of Jesus kind of more friendly, and he's my buddy, and I'm his friend, and we're cool, and five, Jesus, you and me? Or, or is there more to Jesus that if I were to see him, and I actually know this, it would knock me off my feet like John. A second question. Do I understand how the story ends? Do I have clarity on where all of human history is going? And is it actually making a difference in the middle of my story? If not, why not? What's not clear? Third, I think we should ask ourselves this question. For some of us, it's going to be really easy because it's all really new. But for others of us who've been students of the Bible going to church for a while, is uh, what's been my approach? What's been my history with the churches that I've been in relative to this book? Has it been like this secret code on the final events, always looking to the future and always focused on these things that are happening around us now? Or is it, I've been around those places and I've seen people get into fights about being a pre-mill or a post-mill or an ah ah-mill. You're going, what are you talking about? Well, there's more. A pre-trib or a post-trib or a mid-trib. And, you know, I just don't even want to get around that stuff. And it's so confusing. And I dipped into those waters, and I jumped out. (laughs) So I don't know where you're at. But here's my challenge to you. I challenge you to read the book of Revelation this week. I'm going to actually post my notes on the Storyline Resource. So you can find that through the Message tab. I'm going to just post these. I'm not going to do it again, so don't ask me. I'm telling you right now. I don't usually do that. I'm not going to do that in the future. But I'm going to post it there so because we're just talking about a whole bunch of stuff and it's new for most of us. So I encourage you to read. I encourage you to connect back with the Bible Project. Remember Tim Mackey, he started us off in this wonderful series and he's got great resources. Our friend from over at Blackhawk Days when he was here as a pastor and all that he's doing through the Bibleproject.com. Get on that. Watch the two videos on Revelation. And get ready to buckle up. It's going to be hard, but God's going to help you as you apply yourselves to understanding the connection between the end of the story and your messy middle right now. Believing that when we know that, man, we can honor Christ. We can have hope. We can be strengthened to not give up, and we can be emboldened to not give in, ready for his any day return. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help when we find ourselves in hard places, super discouraged, worn out, ready to throw in the towel. Lord, we need your help when we don't even realize we need your help and we've just been slip-sliding away Mm -hmm. and we've been complacent and there's just a lot of compromise and we're actually playing a game. And we've grown this little toggle switch that depending who we're with, we can say and do completely different things. And we're grateful that this word that was so important to your churches back then is a word meant to bless us as we hear it and we take it to heart. And so I pray that there would be this happy collision of your blessing. And your people's happiness. As they're called back to you, Lord Jesus. The center of history. The one who will make all things right. And so until that day, would you give us faith, strength and faith, to stay under what's hard. Would you wake us up to what's at stake, Lord, as we find ourselves maybe falling into compromise. We love you thank you for this word. We ask for your help as we seek to understand it and have it make a difference in how we live our lives. In Christ's name.